Hey folks, this is Jesse Cope, back with another episode of the American Soul Podcast. Hope y'all are doing well, wherever y'all are, as always, whatever part of the day you're in, I appreciate you joining me, giving me a few minutes of your day, and for those of y'all that continue to, to share the podcast and talk about it with others, uh, I'm very grateful for that, y'all help it to grow. Just almost continuously and hopefully helps y'all and the other people that y'all share it with and helps our country just a little bit. Take one of our walks today. Don't have anybody with me today. So just us. I don't think I really have anything to report on the garden too much. We got a pretty good batch of tomatoes out the other day. I have no idea what I'm going to do with them yet, but nonetheless. Oh, here comes one puppy dog. So, we'll see if we get anybody else. All right. I feel like I had some housekeeping to do from yesterday. Or the last episode, because that wasn't yesterday. But I can't remember it right now. So, we'll just move on. I, the point always, folks, uh, sometimes I don't do a real good job, is the overarching point of this podcast is that if we don't have God at the center of our nation, then we lose our republic. And and our founders and our great leaders have known this. It's just today that we've bought into this modern lie. And so I try each episode almost in some way to show just how tied we have always been as a nation to to God and to Jesus Christ. Not not just some random deity like so many on the left like to say today, but truly God the Father of Jesus Christ the Son and the Holy Spirit. And and really this is kind of developed but you know, the big deal here goes back again and again and again. All of the problems that we see today go back to this rejection of God. And and that really stems from the 1947 Supreme Court decision uh, of Everson, I pronounced that right just then, versus the school board in which the Supreme Court used the letter that we've talked about a few times here from Jefferson and the separation of church and state line. And we've talked about a lot of that. So, but the whole point here, folks, is just like we saw Roe v. Wade overturned recently, we've got to have this decision, this horrific evil, really, and and totally wrong, completely unjustifiable decision of separation of church and state overturned and get God back in our public lives, public policy, institutions, particularly education. I was talking to a, a teacher that's retired now recently, and but who taught for decades in public school. And and we were talking about, uh, and, and she made kind of a general comment about some of the problems in education today. But we were talking about, you know, we take these kids away today from mom and dad for 
especially at the high school level, if they're if they're doing any kind of extracurricular activity, we we take the kids away from parents for up to twelve hours a day. And and really, if you throw in daycare now, folks, somebody else is raising our children from for a big chunk of the country from the age of about six weeks until they're 18 with very few interruptions in that summer break, Christmas break. And, and so we're paying other people to raise our children, which is, is a big problem in and of itself folks. And that was not the way that we were intended to be set up. I'm kind of going off on a rabbit trail here, but I think it's pretty important and imperative to what we were going to talk about today. We give all this time away, which is what the socialists, the leftists have wanted, stated since the 1920s when we talked about Dewey. They want the kids away from parents more and more universally and younger and younger. And, and we've been doing that, but the, the, the really the compounding thing, the things that makes it so horrible is while we've been doing that, we've been kicking God out of public education, out of these places where other people are raising our children. And so now not only are we, we're not raising our own kids, the people that we're paying to raise them either won't or can't because of, of criminal threats, liabilities, if you want to use that word, teach them about God and Jesus Christ. And then to boot, you have some that actively teach against it, which is apparently somehow okay. Never have understood how the left can say that it's not okay using separation of church and state to teach about God and Jesus Christ, but it is okay to teach against God and Jesus Christ as a public education. I, I just doesn't make any sense because because it's wrong, folks. Because it's it's never going to make sense because it's not truthful. It's dishonest, disingenuous. So the point is of all of this little rambling. What I'm trying to do here each day is, is to give you and me, because I'm learning just like y'all are, trust me, information so that when somebody comes and says, this is a secular nation, no, it's not. Just like President Wilson said, this is a Christian nation. This is a Christian republic. It was born that way. And then two, when somebody picks something in particular like public education and says, well, our founders never wanted God and Jesus Christ in the Bible at the center of our education. No, again, Fisher Ames, First Amendment, Benjamin Rush, a number, John Quincy Adams, president. All of these people wanted God, Daniel Webster, at the center of education. And they they knew how important the family was, oh, besides that. So we've completely taken what really should be a positive institution for the nation and, and completely forgive this kind of crass way, but we've completely screwed it up, folks. So what I want to talk about today is I wanted to go over what were some of the first things that were published in our country. What were some of the, the what, what were the important things? Not what the talking heads on, on MSNBC or, or CNN or CBS, ABC, whatever they say, but the actual truth. Like, what did we print here? Because that was a big deal because that was hard to do early on before America was even a country. And then even when America became a country, that was difficult. So that would have meant that whatever we chose to print, right, 
especially early on, that must have been pretty important. So I'm going to read a couple excerpts. This is These first two come from the Patriots Bible. Huge resource. Again, folks, I, I, I know I say this for those of y'all that listen constantly, but Patriots Bible, Founders Bible, and the American Encyclopedia, God and Country Encyclopedia of Quotes. I feel like those are just three books that every single family in the country, certainly every single classroom in the country should have just and good copies. So, first book, the very first book published in the American colonies, when the Pilgrim Fathers arrived at Plymouth, Massachusetts, the influence of the Bible and their Christian faith over their lives and literature came with them. A mere 20 years later, the Bay Psalm Book, which was originally titled The Whole Book of Psalms, faithfully translated into English meter, metre meter was printed in 1640 in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It was the first book printed in the colonies as well as the first book entirely written in the colonies. The first printing press in New England was purchased and imported specifically to print this volume. The early residents of the Massachusetts Bay Colony brought with them several books of Psalms in metrical translations into English but they were dissatisfied with the translations from Hebrew and hired 30, quote, 30 pious and learned ministers, end quote, to undertake a new translation. It represented a sacred value held by the Puritans, a faithful translation of God's word to be sung and worshiped by the entire congregation. Given the harsh living conditions of those early years, it was a remarkable achievement. The Bay Psalm book went through several editions and remained in use for well over a century. This Psalter and the New England Primer were, next to the Bible, the most commonly owned books in the 17th century New England. In 17th century New England. So, we have our ancestors, our heritage, the people that moved over here. Having a faithful translation of the Bible, that was the first book printed in the colonies. That was a huge deal to them. Very important, right? Uh, and so this idea that we're not, I mean, this is even before we came a country, but this is what our founders, this is what they grew up with. These, Especially those founders, you know, the Great Awakening that occurred in the early to mid-1700s. This is what they grew up. Patrick Henry, John Adams. They grew up listening to these sermons and these people that had this super strong Christian faith. Different denominations, different sects, absolutely. But this strong faith in, in God the Father of Jesus Christ the Son and the Holy Spirit. So this idea of when you hear people say, oh, that's just nonsense. We're not a Christian nation. We're, you know, maybe paganism or uh Roman republicanism, but the nothing to do with Jesus Christ and God. That's just simply false. It's not true. Another little excerpt here in Colonial American. In addition to the Bible and the Bay Psalm book, the first textbook for school children, the New England Primer, taught the ABCs by children memorizing basic biblical truths and lessons about life. A, in Adam's fall, we send all. B, heaven to find the Bible mind. C, Christ crucified for sinners died, and so on. 
included in the primer were the names of the Old and New Testament books, the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments, the Westminster Abbey Shorter Catechism, and John Cotton's Spiritual Milk for American Babes. The primer was the second best-selling book in the American colonies. The Bible was number one. So here again, colonial America, so we're getting a little bit closer now to our actual founding. The main textbook for skills for children was based on the Bible. It, it went through and taught these children little rhymes to associate with truths from the Bible. And so how in the world are we supposed to, again, we, you know, we talk about Fisher Ames so often, author of the, the First Amendment, the one that put the final wording in of the First Amendment that was approved, and his comments on textbooks for school children. But how do we get from this just super strong foundation of biblical beliefs in just in the country in general, and then but even specifically for education, and then now, all of a sudden, since 1947, we're supposed to believe that our founders, our great leaders, wanted, A, wanted nothing to do with Christianity, or if they did, they wanted to pretend that Christianity was just the same as Islam, uh, atheism, Buddhism, Hinduism, and any other paganism. I mean, folks, if y'all been listening to this podcast long enough, you can make up your own mind. But the more of these tools I give you or that you get on your own through your own research, it's got to be apparent that that's, that's either false based on ignorance or false based on malevolent design, trying to undermine the, the values of this republic. Y'all know my opinion. I say it often enough here. Personally, I think it's it's the latter to a large degree, and, and that's why I think we have a fight coming, because we have two groups of people that are ideologically divided and and the bridge just you know all things are possible with god i I try and remember to say that every once in a while here Uh, so anything's possible but just like with the british and the colonists just like with the north and the south i'm afraid that we're getting to the point where that that divide is just it's not bridgeable so i as i was doing this research uh, i stumbled across the man who actually was one of the men who helped print the uh, Bay Psalm book. And it, it kind of turned me on to something else that I think is, is really pretty interesting. I'll tell you what, though. Let me let me read through this first because I think this is pretty fascinating. So Continental Congress, September the 10th, 1782, in response to the need for Bibles, which again arose, right, because we were having trouble getting them in from Britain which had been our source, but obviously being at war with them uh, earlier on and, and recently, that was going to be a problem. So the the Congress, Continental Congress, granted approval to print a neat edition of the Holy Scriptures for use in <laughs> schools. Shocking. The printing was contracted to Robert Aitken of Philadelphia, a bookseller, and the publisher of the Pennsylvania Magazine, who had previously petitioned Congress on January 21st, 1781. This edition has come to be known as the Bible of the Revolution. The following endorsement of Congress, so Congress put this endorsement, was printed on the front page. Whereupon resolved the United States in Congress assembled, recommended this edition of the Bible, 
to the inhabitants of the United States, and hereby authorized Robert Aiken to publish this recommendation in the manner he shall think proper. So Congress, Congress, folks, this was the Continental Congress of the United States, says, hey, we need a Bible. We're having trouble getting them in. Uh, Robert Aiken petitioned us. We agree. And we need it in particularly for the use in schools, education. So go ahead and print this, and we're going to stamp our seal of approval inside saying that we authorize you to publish this and the recommendation that you think best fit. And, and there's some back and forth there, and I'll try and come back and do a podcast. I think I've talked about Aiken before, but I'll try and come back to that again because there, there was more to it than that, that that makes it even more damning to the comments that you hear today about America not being a Christian republic, uh, because there were some very strong words about the need for this Bible and, and how important it was coming from Congress. But I just wanted to add that. So you look at this again and again, you go back to the colonial era, you go back to uh, even before that, well, I guess maybe that was still part of it, right? But you go back to the Pilgrim Fathers at Plymouth. Again and again, we turn to the Bible. This is what we're going to print. We need this, particularly in education. Again and again, this is going to be the primary textbook. So the idea of separation of church and state, the way the 47, it, it just, it's just false. And it's, it's mind-boggling to me, folks, that we have these people that were supposed to know so much about our country's heritage uh, and be the, the experts and that they could find some way to say, to take a line out of a private letter from Jefferson and completely say that we needed to get rid of Christianity out of our public policy institutions. Seems a little dubious. So John Elliott, called the Apostle to the Indians, was the first minister to teach Christianity to the Indians of New England. A graduate of Cambridge, he traveled to Boston in 1631, where he became a teacher and pastor. A young Indian who had converted from paganism to Christianity helped Eliot learn various Indian dialects. He was responsible for having written the first Indian translation of the Bible as well as the first Indian grammar book. In addition, he established 3,600 Indians into over a dozen self-governing communities. In his work, the Christian Commonwealth in 1659, which was a draft of a plan of government for the Natick Indian community, Eliot explained that, it is not for man to search human politics and platforms of government, contrived by the wisdom of man. But as the Lord hath carried on their works for them, so they ought to go unto the Lord and inquire at the word of his mouth what platform of government he hath therein commanded, and humble themselves to embrace that as the best. The written word of God is a perfect system or frame of laws to guide all the moral actions of man, either towards God or man. So he's saying, you know, if we really want to know, not a theocracy, folks, because I know some I already got. We talked about this, got hammered for that last week, not promoting a theocracy. That's not what Elliot was saying here. But he's saying, as you develop your government, where should you turn most? The Bible. That's not saying you're going to put priests and pastors in charge of the government. That's saying. You look at the Ten Commandments, which our founders did. You look at the Bible, which our founders did. Education, government, it's got to go back to God and the Bible. Washington, right? Washington's quote, it's impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. 
Shocking. Again and again, we come back to this. I know I'm running up close, folks. A couple more things. In 1640, John Eliot, along with Richard Mather and Thomas Welch, printed the very first book in the colonies, using the first printing press in the American colonies located in Cambridge. This book became the approved hymnal of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, known as the Bay Psalm Book. It was entitled, The Whole Book of Psalms Faithfully Translated into English Metric, whereunto is prefixed a discourse declaring not only the lawfulness, but also the necessity of the heavenly ordinances of singing scripture psalms in the churches of God. So he helped put this. Not only did he uh, get a translation of the Bible for Indians, but and there's more to John Eliot than just this. It's, it's really kind of an interesting story. But I know that I'm running up against the end here. So I'm going to go ahead and let y'all have your freedom. The only last comment is when I was reading through this, you know, we, we hear so often today from the left about how oppressive and sexist and racist, bigoted, just in general, America is fundamentally, right? Not, not that we haven't had those moments, but they say fundamentally, systemically, based on our system, we are those things, right? And, and they really, who do they attack? And obviously, uh, you know, this is coming from one, but I'm just, anyway, they attack Christians, particularly white Christians, particularly male white Christians. So isn't it interesting, though, that the people that often, like Elliot here, going out to help the Indians, or the people, the abolitionists that really helped end slavery were what? Male, white, and above all, Christians. Because there were others. I'm not trying to say that those are the only people that helped Indians or the only people that fought against slavery. But that was a pretty good majority. So I, I just, that popped into my head as I was reading about John Elliott here. Because when you read his story, he gave up so much of his life to go and help. And no, these Indians weren't living this utopian lifestyle and they would have been, you know, just perfect if we had never come. They had a really rough life, folks, and they were indeed, there was a reason at one point they were called savages because because they lived like that, as, as most cultures did at, at some point in time in their history. And so John Eliot, when he came in, he really was helping to better those. And really, particularly, the fascinating thing is, and then I'll be quiet, who did he help most, probably? He helped most the women and children. And yet, because of his race, his gender... And his faith, most of all, the left today would castigate him. Sure do appreciate it. Hope y'all got something out of it. Uh, thanks for sticking with me for a few extra minutes. God bless y'all. God bless your families. God bless America. We will talk again real soon. Looking forward to it, folks.